Welcome back to another one of our Six Questions podcasts. I am Trent England with Save Our States. Glad to welcome back to the program Jason Sneed. He's the director of the Honest Elections Project, which works all across the country to defend the uh, honesty, integrity of our elections. What could be more important than that? Jason, welcome. It's great to be back, Trent. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about something you and I have been working on, uh, which is this whole question of ranked choice voting. And uh, I think we can we can probably tell people that we will have a, uh, a little book coming out from Encounter Books probably this summer about ranked choice voting. I'm excited about that. Uh, we're seeing a lot of activity in the states to ban ranked choice voting. Uh, with South Dakota becoming the third state that's taken action to do that. Jason, do you think that ranked choice voting is the most serious threat to election integrity right now? How do you put this in context? Well, I certainly think that it is uh, it is a top five issue for election integrity. Uh, anytime you're fundamentally transforming elections, uh, you're going to risk, even in the best of circumstances, unintended consequences. And we also have to keep in mind that public confidence in elections is incredibly fragile at this moment. And I always, always think about a poll that came out a couple of years ago at this point that uh, indicated at the time that only about one in four Americans think that both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections were correctly decided. So there is a fragility around the question of election confidence on both the left and the right, and sweeping changes to elections, particularly when they're predicated as ranked choice voting has been on arguments that we need to you know, change the way we vote because we don't like the outcomes of elections. That's only going to damage confidence in elections and, and potentially discourage people from voting. And then you've got all the other issues that come with ranked choice voting as a, as a question of its merits, right? And we know that it makes voting harder. We know that it makes elections more difficult to decipher. The, the results are, are often made opaque and they kind of convert the election tabulation system into a black box. And by making voting more difficult for the average voter, you actually wind up discouraging some of the most vulnerable voters from participating in the first place or else leave them uh, at the at the whims of you know, third party vote harvesters and things like that because they need their help to fill out their ballots. So there's lots of problems with ranked choice voting. And I would certainly put this at the top echelon of threats to the continuing ongoing uh, uh, integrity of our elections and public confidence in the results. And Jason, we've seen an interesting shift over the last year or so where, you know, you go back, uh, you know, a year or two, and there were some red states that were really flirting with this. And, you know, Utah still uh, basically has a pilot program where local governments are are doing this. And Utah is a, a red state, clearly. And now we see a lot of red states in particular moving to prohibit ranked choice voting. I mean, what's what's going on there? What's responsible for this real strong swing, uh, at least among, I think, conservatives, Republicans against ranked choice voting? Well, I think that uh, things have changed a lot over the last, you know, just two years in terms of awareness about what ranked choice voting is, right? If, if you just hear that term, it kind of sounds a little academic, uh, a little unusual. You don't know exactly what it is and you just sort of write it off. And that's actually what the pro-ranked choice voting community has kind of benefited from is this lack of understanding that has allowed them to get their foot in the door in local uh, uh, local elections all over the country, right? So you kind of wake up one day and realize that you've got 60 odd major municipalities in the US that are suddenly using this novel scheme called RCV. But we've also seen 
as more awareness has been drawn to the ranked choice voting uh, issue, as we've dug deeper, we've seen who is funding this, we've seen the groups that are backing it. I think it's become very clear to conservatives that ranked choice voting is not a bipartisan reform or a nonpartisan reform. It is uh, a wolf in sheep's clothes. It is a it is a left wing election reform that is increasingly being pushed in you know red and purple states for reasons that don't seem on their face to make a whole lot of sense. And the other thing that I think people are picking up on is that as the you know pro ranked choice voting crowd has made their sales pitch all across the country, it's changed in meaningful ways and ways which are sometimes mutually exclusive. And I think that sends up alarm bells as well. If you're a conservative, for instance, in a state like Utah or something like that, and you're being told, bring ranked choice voting into uh, into your state and it will help you box out the moderates. But then the moderates are being told this is the way to box out the conservatives in the party. You know, you've got these mutually uh, exclusive, very different visions for what the impact is. I think that gets people's um, uh, backs up. And then you're also seeing how uh, a pitch is being made to states where you've got a dominant Republican or Democratic Party, right? That ranked choice voting is a way to avoid the spoiler problem, i.e. voters can vote their conscience and select a libertarian candidate or a socialist candidate in the first slot, but you'll still get the second vote and that's the most important thing. But then those third parties are being told, no, no, this is actually the way to blow up the dominance of the two parties and get you guys into, into office. So I think there's a combination of factors that's been going on across the country and we've seen this explosion and interest, awareness, and the desire to take action to save uh, the integrity of elections from this you know, really misguided reform. I'm talking with Jason Sneed of the Honest Elections Project on our Six Questions podcast. Jason, question number three, there's a case at the Supreme Court called Harper versus Moore, and the Honest Elections Project submitted an amicus brief in that case. Uh, tell us about the importance of this pending decision. So this particular Supreme Court case represents the best opportunity uh, at the moment to foreclose a lot of the election-related mischief that we've seen from the likes of Mark Elias and other litigators who try to use and abuse the power of courts to rewrite election laws behind closed doors, often in the context of collusive consent decrees and settlements, to skew the election system itself to favor the left in, in the democratic process. And we've seen that so much over the last, really the last decade, but it, it kind of reached a fever pitch in 2020 when we saw hundreds of lawsuits filed um, from groups on the left all before election day. Uh, trying to get rid of voter ID, get rid of uh, vote trafficking bans, force states to mail everyone a ballot, get rid of almost any election integrity measure and, and just rewrite the laws of states willy-nilly to, to suit the political needs of, of the left at the time. What Moore v. Harper is about is a fundamental question of who actually gets to write the laws that govern elections. If you talk to Mark Elias and his fellow litigators on the left, they'll say, well, lawmakers, sure, but also we've got a lot of Democratic attorneys general, and I'd love for them to be able to take out a pen and you know rewrite the laws. Courts should absolutely be able to rewrite the laws. But if you actually look at the Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, the Elections Clause says that legislatures in the states are responsible for writing the rules that govern elections, times, places, and manners of elections, and they're answerable 
to Congress. So when it comes to federal election rules, the Constitution very clearly says that the elected lawmakers, the people that we represent or that we elect to represent us in government are the ones who are responsible for writing those rules. So this is a case that emerged out of North Carolina. And Mark Elias actually went to the uh, then uh, democratically controlled state Supreme Court and said, look, we want you to take a look at this one provision in the North Carolina state constitution that says all elections shall be free and then use that as a blank check to take all authority away from lawmakers to draw maps in your state. So this was a redistricting case. And they took him up on the offer. And that is the, the genesis of this case. It was the seizure of power by state courts away from lawmakers. And because that violates the clear text, I would argue, of Article 1, Section 4, you had this federal issue. So it went up to the Supreme Court. If you get a good ruling in Moore v. Harper from, uh, from the justices, then you actually have the potential to crib a lot of Mark Elias's uh, tools right from the start before we get into the 2024 presidential election, because suddenly courts can't just go in and rewrite election law on policy grounds, substituting their own judgments as judges for those of the people's representatives. They actually have to respect the laws that are, are passed and on the books. And that will go a long way towards ensuring fairness and, and, and integrity in the election system. Unfortunately, there's been a rehearing of that case in the North Carolina Supreme Court. So we might not get a ruling at all in Moore v. Harper, which means that this question of who actually writes the rules? Is it courts and bureaucrats or is it lawmakers? Will still be lingering. And that creates some opportunities, I think, for some uh, litigation mischief as we move into the 2024 presidential cycle. And we may well see a renewed offensive in the courts to try to rewrite election laws for partisan gain. Well, I know one of the things that we've seen Mark Elias and other folks on the left uh, fight against, which always kind of blows my mind, is cleaning up the voter rolls, right? Cleaning up the lists of voters. This seems like a really basic common sense thing to do to make sure that you don't have dead people on the list, that when people move, their voter registration moves with them, that all this is accurate. You know, people are registered in the places where they really live and not at a P.O. box or a vacant lot or something. Have we made progress on that? Is is this getting better in some of the states that have you know, notoriously problematic voter rolls? Or, you know, are we going to face these same kind of problems as we head into 2024? So the, the voter rolls have always been a source of, uh, of concern for me and for a lot of other folks. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there was a statistic that uh, was put out by Pew about a decade ago, um, and it was pretty startling at the time that uh, one in eight voter registrations nationwide were, were wrong. They were duplicative or they were outdated. And there were millions of people who had died who were still on the rolls. Lots of people dual registered. So this was a nationwide problem. The, 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 the fact is that a lot of states do not prioritize voterless maintenance. Uh, and in fact, you've got all these groups like, you know, Mark Elias and, and others that are going to court trying to make it harder than it already is to remove those outdated uh, records from from the rolls. And they sort of argue that you might be, you know, you might be canceling someone's right to vote, which is an absurd thing, right? If You've got to keep in mind that there is a multi-step process that states have to follow. So they typically mail someone a card and if they don't get a response and then they don't vote 
for four years, then you can actually remove them from the role. So this is something that is, you know, at minimum a five year long process in most places, unless you get, you know, something else that indicates the person has indeed died, for instance. Um, there's a multi-step process there. And even if someone is accidentally canceled from the rolls and they show up to vote, they can vote a provisional ballot and that ballot will still get counted, right? They just have to show that they were properly a resident. So no one is getting disenfranchised, but you do have this concerted multi-million dollar effort in trying to make it harder to clean up the voter rolls. And that's not the only issue that, that Mark Elias keeps fighting. Um, he's fighting against voter ID. Um, you know, which is a two decade old fight at this point. But Idaho just made some changes to their uh, voter identification requirements. So they took student IDs out of the list of acceptable IDs. And Mark Elias filed a lawsuit there uh, challenging that law, even though it's perfectly common sense and alleging that this is going to suppress the vote, even though under Idaho law, you can just sign an affidavit and vote even if you don't have an ID. So this just goes to show that whether you're talking about ID or list maintenance, the objections that the left raises against these very common sense laws in court are just not what they're presented to be. And that's why it's so hard for them, incidentally, to find plaintiffs that when they actually are under oath and testifying or they're in a deposition say, yeah, that law actually made it impossible for me to vote. They they usually end up saying the opposite. <laughs> so, so Jason, one thing that we've seen at Save Our States is that as you know, Democrats won power in Minnesota, in Michigan, in the last uh, state level elections, they have started pushing among a lot of a lot of these same kind of problematic election rules that we're talking about. They've been pushing the national popular vote interstate compact, and you know, you spend a lot of time working with legislators. I'm curious what you think about why this is so appealing to some Democrat lawmakers in the states to give away their state's voice in presidential politics? I mean, is this just about 2016? Is this part of some larger uh, some larger strategy on the left? What, what do you think about all this? Well, I think that one of the, the theories on the left, which I, I don't personally subscribe to, is the theory that demography is destiny. And they really do view elections as sort of a census, right? And they presume, because they've got various political lenses that they view through, that if you are of a certain socioeconomic class and a certain skin color and a certain gender, that you're just automatically going to vote for the left. And they they kind of have this illusion that if we go to a national popular vote, you know, there's there's more on the left than there are on the right. I don't think that's the case. It takes a lot of the uh, the business of elections out of elections. It takes ideas out of elections. It completely ignores the trends that we've seen recently with Hispanic voters and black voters starting to move more towards the, the Republican side than the Democratic side and, and so forth. But I think that that kind of belief, as mistaken as it is, has been sort of taken as doctrinaire by a lot of folks on the left. And they kind of view it through that very cynical lens. And they're looking to make sure that basically it will be very difficult for them to ever lose a presidential election again in the future. That's, I think, what the the very kind of partisan uh, worldview that they've got is is pushing them towards. But that's the same logic that you see with you know, not just the push for NPV, but you also see it with all these other election uh, reforms that, uh, and I, I use that word loosely, reforms, that are getting pushed at the local level or at the state level, particularly in states that have just, you know, developed democratic trifectas in the last election, like Michigan and, and Minnesota. Uh, enfranchising even violent felons, the moment that they, uh, that they set foot out of prison, or as the ACLU would like, prioritizing that when you arrest someone for having committed a crime, that you register them to vote, which I, I think is sort of hilarious 
hilarious, right? Like, let's revise the Miranda. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to register to vote. It's like that is so wildly out of uh, out, out of what the, the, the most Americans would think of as mainstream crime policy. But we, you know, they're trying to enfranchise felons the moment that they that they walk out of prison, even if they still owe victim restitution. They're they're you know enfranchising non citizens. Washington D.C. Uh, just enacted an absurd law that lets anyone living in the city for 30 days vote, including uh, illegal aliens, including foreign operatives, right? So the Chinese Communist Party can send someone over to staff their embassy, and if they you know, rent an apartment over in DuPont and they live there for 30 days, they can participate in democracy at the heart of the American Republic, even though they're there probably working against our national interests. Uh, and then, of course, there's the push to lower the voting age. Um, so they want 16 and 17-year-olds to vote. And it's the same cynical calculation for all of these. They're looking for ways to reshape the rules, to reshape the electorate in order to make it more left and therefore more likely that the left will win in elections. And that's you know a massive admission against interest, in my opinion, because they're saying you have to change the rules to win. And that's a, a little bit of an admission that they maybe feel like they might not be able to win in the future without doing this. But I think that's what undergirds a lot of the push that we're seeing. It's very, it's very unpopular, each of these policies, but they keep pushing for these things, these attempts to rewrite the rules and reshape elections for, for their own side. And, and on the non-citizen voting piece, that particularly caught the ire, and I thought this was fantastic, of the editorial staff at the Washington Post, who called that a <laughs> radical maneuver and, uh, and said that it hurt the effort for D.C. statehood and was a plain attempt to try to reshape the electorate to match the politics of the city council instead of the city council reshaping itself to match the politics of the people, which again, undercuts the left's entire commitment to democracy, right? Democracy is supposed to be government by the people, not you know, the people being governed by the, by the government. So at any rate, it's, um, it, it's a, a very cynical political calculation I think you're seeing for all those issues. Yeah, no, I it, yeah, some of some of these efforts it, it is just wild what uh what folks are are pushing for, you know, I mean it, it used to it used to seem wild to me that the whole the whole push for sort of automatic felon uh uh you know reenfranchisement I guess would be the would be the term, you know, not even requiring people to go through a process and yeah, now it's non-citizen voting, which just pushes so far beyond what average people of any political stripe uh, think about when they think of elections. But uh, be interesting to see where where all of that goes and whether the left just has to uh, pull back from all of that. Uh, I mean, a, a related question, our final question here on the Six Questions podcast is, uh, is about all this, right? I mean, election integrity ought to be a bipartisan issue. I mean, at least when it comes to things that have broad bipartisan support among the public and things that just bolster faith in the electoral process, make it more transparent, make it more accountable. Uh, but we don't we don't see that. Uh, and Jason, I'm, I'm curious, have you been able to gain some traction in blue states or do you see, you know, among among any of the blue states, some of these some of these issues starting to move back in the direction of just, you know, these kind of common sense policies, or are we really trapped in this, this hard right left divide where, uh, you know, states are, are going in opposite directions based on who's in charge? So I think that absent a few areas that I can point to where you have seen some bipartisan progress, uh, most of the time, what you actually do see is that people have sort of gone into their partisan trenches. Now, I will caveat that answer by saying 
that the partisan trenches are really only you know occupied by the political class. When you get out of the people that are actually heavily involved in politics and think of themselves as partisans first, if you go to the average voter, nine times out of 10, they're going to say, absolutely, I think you should show a photo ID. I don't want non-citizens voting. I, I think it's ridiculous to say that my teenage you know, son or daughter should be casting a ballot in an election. And they want clean voter rolls and they want you know, rules that are, are followed from beginning to end, all these very common sense things. And, and that's why we've seen over the last two years uh, in, in polling that we have done and polling that others have done, you know, voter ID laws have gotten more popular over the last two years. So now we're pushing 86, 87 percent on the, the basic notion you should have to show a photo ID, which is presented by the, the political left as, as akin to Jim Crow. Um, but here you've got almost 90 percent of Americans saying the opposite. So the, there is a disconnect between what people say they want in the election uh, context and then what a lot of policymakers, particularly on the left, are doing. And I think that the explanation there lies in the only demographics that you see when you look at the breakdown of the polling that uh, that actually favor the left's position on all these issues. And that's, you know, largely wealthy, white, you know, urban folks, right? The people, in other words, that write the checks to the groups that are fighting against uh, voter ID laws and write the checks to the Democratic Party. They're, they're the people that are, are sort of, you know, steering the ship. And so you get a lot of this um, uh, echo chamber effect because those guys aren't talking to the average person and listening to them. They're kind of following the lead of these thought leaders and others on, on the left. So I think that there's certainly room to, to be gained uh, in this space. And I, I certainly hope that there is an opportunity to return to sanity. But I'm not particularly optimistic, especially when you look at the speech that President Biden gave in, in Selma, politicizing once again the civil rights movement and uh, and rekindling some of the language that he's used over the last couple of years, calling anyone that opposes his his policies on elections, which would be at least half the country as, you know, domestic enemies. That's his phrase. Uh, so he's he's right back there again and uh, and hasn't apparently been chastened at all. I think it's incredibly unfortunate because, as I said at the beginning of the of the podcast, you know, democracy and confidence in elections are fragile. Right. And we need to do everything we can to bolster and strengthen our institutions. And I think the best way to do that is to listen to what the people want. They want they want it to be easy to vote and hard to cheat, as we say. They want they want access, but they also want security. And they want that balance. And that's the best thing that we could do. And politicizing democracy itself in these stark terms might work as a cynical campaign tactic to scare your base. But in the long run, it creates new opportunities for candidates to refuse to acknowledge election contests that they lose and frighten voters and ultimately cost uh, cost us even more in terms of confidence in our elections. So I've always said that this is an American issue. I agree with you. And we talk about it that way and we present it that way. But in terms of the politics and the raw kind of politics of this moment, unfortunately, the the, the reality of, uh, of the average American and their common sense view just hasn't quite penetrated that political bubble. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, as, as you described that, it, it makes me think that, you know, the, the interest of, an, of the average American is at some level in national unity, right? You go out and talk to non-political people, whether they're on the left or the right, for the most part, right? Unless they really become, you know, very radicalized, right? Which you do find among some activists on both sides where they really have this disdain for people who disagree with them. But that's not the average American, even if they are a, you know, pretty solid Republican or a pretty solid Democrat, uh, they have this interest in national unity, which I suspect is why voter IDs become more popular because, 
if you're a Republican after 2016 or a Democrat after 2020, you actually want the other side to have more faith in the system, right? You don't want the other side to be questioning the results, but that the incentives for the political class are a little bit different. And I, I think I feel like you've got folks on the left who they really want people on the right to lose faith with in elections, right? Because that means people on the right will vote in lower numbers. That means people on the right will be easier to sort of, you know, straw man as these crazy people who, you know, reject the democratic process. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting that there may be that divide between ordinary Democrats and the the elite, as, as you say, where the elite, you know, they don't have the same interest in national unity. They, they really are invested in this division and in sort of, you know, trying to drive the other side uh, out of the democratic process, which is which is really dangerous. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for the work that the Honest Elections Project does. How can people stay in touch with your efforts as, uh, you know, as we're going to see the Supreme Court case coming out probably within the next couple of months and, uh, you know, in, in a lot of changes here as state legislative sessions wrap up? How, how can they stay in touch with the Honest Elections Project? Uh, so we have a website, honestelections.org, and we're also very, very active on Twitter and Facebook at Honest Elections is our, our handle for both of those. And then, of course, uh, we've got the other website that uh, Trent, you and I work on together, stoprcv.com, which focuses on the ranked choice voting question, which which really is an urgent issue that uh, I encourage folks to get educated on. That's the best thing that you could do as we continue to see this push for, for ranked choice voting nationwide. But fortunately, right now, we're also seeing that counter push in favor of preserving uh, regular elections that are transparent and accountable to the people. That's right. Jason Sneed, thank you so much for being a, a guest again on our uh, Six Questions podcast. Always great to be here. Thanks, Trent. Thanks to all of you, our listeners and viewers out there. Sorry, I have a little bit of a cold today. I hope, I hope you haven't been listening to my sniffling as we've been, been going along here, but I'm glad to be with you. Glad to have all of you as part of our Save Our States family out there on our email list, on our social media, helping us to get the word out about the importance of the Electoral College, this brilliant constitutional system of federalism that the American founders have given us. It is, uh, it is our republic if we can keep it, and that's what we try to do every day at Save Our States. Until next time, I'm Trent England.